Okay, this morning is um, this morning is March twentieth, and it is Palm Sunday. And our message this morning is called Tethered. Anybody ever play that game when you were a kid in school with the uh, pole and the tether ball? A tether is a, a cord that binds one thing to another. Tethered. You got it? Okay. Everybody knows knows what I'm talking about. Turn with me to Zechariah, or Zechariah, really. You know, we mispronounced that badly. If you get to uh, Matthew and hang a left, you'll find Zechariah. We're going to be in Zechariah 9 this morning. It's Palm Sunday. On Palm Sunday, you would expect to hear lots of messages. Uh, this morning, I'm going to take advantage of the fact that it's Palm Sunday and start with a familiar theme and then go off to teach what I want to teach about. <laughs> it's wonderful being able to do that and not being bound by tradition, isn't it? Okay, in Zechariah 9, we see uh, a very familiar quote that you will recognize from the New Testament may never have gone backwards to see in, in the Old Testament or in the book of Zechariah what the context was for it. Everybody knows that this is the day uh, when in our calendar we commemorate the first day of the week where Jesus entered Jerusalem. We call it the triumphal entry. And... Some people call it Palm Sunday, and they call it Palm Sunday because Jesus was received as a king. He was received by all the people. They loved Him. They cried out to Him, Hosanna, Son of David, King of Israel, come save us, right? They embraced Him in the way that we hope we embrace Him. Isn't that true? Y'all can talk to me this morning. Is that true? Okay. (laughs) That's right, Pastor. Uh, There's a problem with triumphal entry, Palm Sunday, though. And it's the same problem that the church has today and it's what we're going to talk about. They embraced Him on Sunday and on Wednesday they disowned Him. And it's virtually the same group of people. Not exactly, but virtually. Many times we embrace Jesus as King. We're excited about what He has to do until we find out His agenda is different than ours. And then it's real easy for us to disown Him. Now, none of you in here woke up this morning and said, you know, today... I am going to disown Jesus. We're Christians. He's king in our life. We think about Him as king in our life. But there are situations that come by where we decide He's not king of this area of our life. And it's not always a conscious decision, but you can look back and see, wow, I really didn't lean on Jesus as king in that area. The lesson that I hope we learn from this morning is going to be a couplefold. One is we're going to get into Hebraic roots. The second is that we need to be consistent in Jesus being king of our lives. And that comes from being tethered in a way. Okay, y'all in Zechariah? This will be a little bit of a departure. Not, not as much of a preaching message as a teaching message. But you know what? When you learn something instead of being entertained by something, it'll change your life. And once you get some of these principles, it's easier to walk this thing out, which is what this is all about. I'm not interested so much as entertaining you this morning as you leaving here changed. That's why we put the sign above the door. Y'all in Zechariah 9? Starting in verse 8. But I will defend... This is on page 1057 in the Thompson chain. But I will defend my house against marauding forces. If you were a Jew and the Lord said He would defend His house, what would you think He was talking about? Israel, what else? What specifically symbolized God's house in Israel? The temple. But I will defend my house against marauding forces. 
Never again will an oppressor overrun my people. For now, I am keeping watch. Okay, you're an Israelite. You're in first century Israel. And you're meditating on a scripture from a prophet that you hold up to be a prophet of God. You're excited. You embrace His Word. You search these Scriptures diligently and you hear the Word that God is going to defend His house against marauding forces. What do you think? think He's going to defend His temple. Then you see, never again will an oppressor overrun His people. If you're in first century Israel, who's the oppressor? The Romans. Romans. So you are thinking, wow, there's going to be a day when God will defend His temple. There'll never again be marauders coming into it. There's going to be a day when God will overrun the oppressor. Now, if you're oppressed, if you're facing marauding forces, this would be a promise you would cling to, would it not? I would think so. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on the donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will free your prisoners from the waterless pit. Return to your fortress, O prisoners of hope, Even now I announce that I will restore to you twice as much, and I will bend Judah as I bend my bow and fill it with Ephraim. I will rouse your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and make you like a warrior sword. This scripture that speaks of your king coming gentle and riding on a donkey also speaks of God defending his house, overrunning the oppressor. Would you all agree? If you're a Jew and this is given to you because they're the keepers of the Word, the people on earth that God gave His special revelation to, to be chief among the nations, to be priest among the nations. When they heard this, what do you think they heard? They heard God's going to defend us. God's going to overrun the oppressor. And we're going to have a king who's going to appear on a donkey to do this. Right? Isn't that what you would hear? Incidentally, this last verse, verse 13 I will rouse your sons, O Zion. Zion is a synonym for Jerusalem. It means the mountain of the Lord. Jerusalem is on a mountain. Your daughters, O Zion, or sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece. Just prior to the Romans, the Greeks had conquered the entire world. Alexander had conquered the whole world by the time he was 30 years old. So that in Israel, a common expression would be you are either a Jew or you are Greek. There were... Israel, and then there was the rest of the world. Today, this would be like you're a Christian or you're lost. We don't go into Buddhists, Hindus, Islam. We don't name all of those things. To us, there's one division, those in Christ and those outside of. Well, in Israel, there were those that were daughters or sons of Zion and those those that were Greek. You see that carried out in the New Testament. Ephesians promises us that the dividing wall between Jews and Greeks will be torn down promises us that. The whole world was divided into two categories in their thought. Here the same picture that speaks of this king coming riding on a donkey also speaks of overthrowing oppressors, defending the house, and rousing the sons of Zion against the sons of Greece. Now, have you noticed if you watch uh, History Channel, 
every major war that you've ever seen, people have quoted Nostradamus. Have you, have you ever noticed that? Nostradamus has been quoted both in support of the Allied forces and by Hitler against the Allied forces. Nostradamus has been given credit for a rise of the Antichrist in the Middle East and against a rise of the Antichrist in the Middle East. He's been quoted because his words are ambiguous. Okay, I say that not to compare Nostradamus with the Scripture, but there's a propensity in man when you read something to see in it what you would like to see in it. That's why the Scripture is dependent not upon the wisdom of man, but upon divine revelation of the Holy Spirit. That's what the Scripture is dependent upon. When they read this, there was a natural tendency to see something in it. But it was not necessarily what the Holy Spirit was trying to show them in it. Kind of like when people read 1 Thessalonians 4 or 2 Thessalonians 2. You can see something. You can sell books about it that are sold at Walmart, that are bestsellers all over the nation. Or you can see what the Spirit is actually trying to reveal. Man has his own interpretation and the Spirit has his own. Everybody agreed with that? Let's go ahead and finish this for a second, okay? Because there's no divisions in this. This was a scroll given to people. So there is no break after Zion and Greece. Next verse, 14. Then the Lord will appear over them. His arrow will flash like lightning. What's this sound like to a Christian? This sounds like a second coming. You know, many times when you look, uh, I've been discussing this a lot with uh, Brad in the church. When you're talking about the resurrection, the resurrection is often spoken of like it were one event. But you see two very distinct things happening. You know what else is spoken of as one event often in the Bible? The Lord's coming. You know, this idea that He would appear in first century Israel, then there would be a long time period and He would appear again, is not so clear in the Scripture. It's not something that you just turn to and go, oh, well, that was obvious. How did, how did they miss this? It's something that confused even the disciples after three years of ministry. But it is there. We have the benefit of looking in the rearview mirror and seeing hindsight. They didn't have that. So in their mind, we're seeing one event. Okay? Don't, don't separate what I've already read to you about overthrowing oppressors, defending God's house against marauders from what we're reading here. Then the Lord will appear over them. His arrow will flash like lightning. The sovereign Lord will sound the trumpet. He will march in the storms of the south and the Lord Almighty will shield them. They will destroy and overcome with sling stones. They will drink and roar as with wine. They will be full like a bowl used for sprinkling the corners of the altar. The Lord their God will save them on that day as the flock of His people. They will sparkle in His land like jewels in the crown. How attractive and beautiful they will be. Grain will make the young men thrive and new wine the young women. Basically, to a Jew reading this, what we have is, man, there's going to be a day when we're going to overthrow the oppressors. There'll never again be a marauding force come into the house of God. He's going to appear like lightning with us. There's going to be a king. He's going to be gentle and riding on a donkey, coming with salvation and righteousness. And God Himself is going to make us sparkle and overcome everybody that comes against us. That's what they saw. So then turn with me to Luke. And I say that's what they saw. That's what you would see if you didn't know the events of the last 2,000 years. You will find out this morning that because we don't know some of the events of the last 2,000 years, we've accepted some heresies and some misconceptions. There are times we don't see things as clearly as we had hoped the Jews would have seen it in Jesus' day. Y'all in Matthew 21? No, I told you Luke 19. Hmm. Huh? <laughs> 
Every once in a while I trick you. I think you ought to be in Luke. This would be page 1166. This is Palm Sunday. The king of the Jews is going to arrive and be received as a king, but there was a certain expectation. And I've taught you in the book of John that their expectation of Jesus or expectation of the Messiah was varied. They didn't all have the same idea, but they had some general conceptions about what would happen in the Messianic age. Some of them come from Zechariah that we just read. If you didn't get anything else from Zechariah, you should get that when I see a king coming on a white don- or on a donkey, I already expect the oppressors to be driven out. I already expect God to defend His people. I already expect to be shining like a sparkling thing. I already expect to be a victor. That's what they were hoping for. Now Jesus shows up in Luke 19, starting in verse 28. After He had said this, He went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. As He approached Bethphage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, He sent two of them, two of His disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Tell him, the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went out and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? They replied, the Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. By the way, just a little side note here. Sometimes we're so protective of our stuff, we don't see our stuff as belonging to God. You know, it's interesting. In the Bible, everything that you have is presented as if it were God's. And as a show of faith, you gave a portion of it back to Him. Not because God needed it. He doesn't eat grain offerings. He doesn't drink wine offerings. He doesn't eat the sacrifices. He's not like the pagans that you're giving to buy something from Him. not buying protection for the year. You're, you're not... Uh, bribing your God for support. In the Jewish mindset, you were giving back to God some of what He gave you as a show of faith. Lord, I believe that everything that I have is Yours. And I'm going to intentionally give You some of it back, leaving myself with less, knowing that You will show me in what I have provision. They did this each week. They did this each month. And they did this each year. And they did it every 50 years. This was a principle in their lives that taught them to show faith in all that they did. We've reduced this principle down to preachers telling people you're under a curse if you don't tithe. I don't believe that. But I do believe that a way to show faith is to allow God to move in every area of your life. And I want to encourage you. I'm very excited that that you do that. Uh, Not because I want something from you, but because it shows God's working in your life. It's one thing to say it saves me. Another thing to say I want this from God and got it. It's another to show faith in those difficult areas of your life, what you eat, what you wear, what you drink. Anyway, this person, Jesus shows, uh, sends disciples out. Listen to how simple this conversation was. When they ask what you're doing, just say the Lord needs it. Don't you wish that you had perfect confidence that anything you needed that somebody else had in the kingdom of God that you needed for the Lord's work, you could just look at them and say the Lord has need of it and there'd be no argument, no objection? <laughs> doesn't work quite that way, does it? Okay, anyway, that was an aside note. I was just thinking about it this morning. They replied, the Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus through their cloaks on the colt and Jesus, and put Jesus on it. As He went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When He came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, they began, I'm sorry, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully 
to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Why are they praising God? They're praising God because the miracles themselves seemed to show that what Jesus said about Himself was true. He was a king. He was a Messiah. The place where this is occurring is the Mount of Olives, the future site of the resurrection. It is the place that Zechariah talked about the Lord appearing. I didn't read that to you, but that's Zechariah 14. They're going down the Mount of Olives where the Zechariah said the Lord would appear towards the gates of Jerusalem, right towards the temple. And people began to throw the cloaks on the ground. They're seeing uh, what Zechariah said come true. Verse 38, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. That's what the people are saying. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build embankments against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. How sad. These people had been hoping in a Scripture in Zechariah hoping that the day of their oppression would be thrown off. The day when they were disgraced by these Gentile kingdoms would be thrown off. Daniel had prophesied there will be four Gentile kingdoms that will rule the earth. They knew the Romans were the fourth. Zechariah had promised there will be a day when the sons of Zion will be defended by God and the sons of Greece will be thrown out. They were excited. They thought this would be that day. Why? Because they saw a man who claimed to be the king of the Jews whose God seemed to support his whole life and everything he said about himself seemed to be true. And he came gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the Word says. And all the people went out to him. Have you ever wondered, how on earth could they be so fickle? How could they say Jesus is King on Sunday and on Wednesday be ready to kill Him? How could that be? Well, first off, it's a representative group. It's not the whole nation. But secondly, because everything that they had hoped the Messiah would do, Jesus seems to turn away from here. What does He say? Does He come and He's ready to overthrow the Romans? No, He comes and He condemns them for saying you've not recognized the day of God's coming to you. You haven't recognized the day of peace. In fact, He's going to go into the temple here and proclaim it unclean, a den of thieves and robbers. He's quoting Jeremiah 7, verse 11, and He calls it a den of thieves and robbers and said, you thought God wasn't watching, but He was, and He is against you, Israel. That's what Jeremiah said. And Jesus quotes it here. Oh, you don't see quotes in your Bible. That's because Jesus knew the Word very well and the people who put this together didn't catch the cross-reference. But I assure you it's there. They had been hoping for immediate gratification. And instead what they got was, you need to be sanctified. You need to be purged. Now tell me something. It's easy to put down on Israel. Say, oh, those bad Jews. In fact, we've been taught to do that. The idea of deicide crept into the church. And I'll teach about that a little longer. Those Jews who killed God. You know, that's a thought that came right out of the pits of hell. Here's what's funny about it. We look at such sober judgment at those Jews. We attribute everything bad in the Bible to those Jews. 
and everything good in the Bible to we, the church. But when Jesus does not meet your needs immediately, how do you react? Do you embrace Him as King on the first day of the week and by the middle of the week are ready to turn your back on Him? I know you. I know you well. I see you do it. I see myself do it. It happens. They're no different than us. When you have certain expectations about what God will do and you don't see Him fulfilled right away, our faith begins to wane. This ought not be so. God, in fact, set up this scenario to help teach them. They didn't get it and most of us don't get it, but I'm going to use it as an opportunity to teach us some things about church history and about how you stay steady in your life. Turn to Matthew. Matthew 21. You remember that Luke said Jesus sat on a colt? Do you remember that? Okay, yeah, y'all need to answer me. You've got to stay awake in here. Yeah, I don't require much of the people, just that you pretend to be interested while I preach. <laughs> Matthew or Luke said they sat on a colt, that Jesus sat on a colt, and all the people embraced Him as a king and said, Hosanna, save us, King, King of Israel, come, save us. Hosanna is an expression of urgency, means save us now. Do for us now what Zechariah promised. Do it now. That's what they were wanting. We want to order at this window and we want to pick up at this window, just like Christians today. I prayed the prayer of Jabez, Lord, bless me now. Lord, I read that book and it said that when things get tough, I'll be out of here now. Everything's about immediate gratification. It was then too. But let me ask you something. Have they waited? They had waited an equal time that you've now waited. They had been waiting nearly 2,000 years for this event. It had been promised. Actually, they had been waiting longer than that if you take it back to the garden. been waiting 4,000 years. So if they're guilty of wanting immediate gratification, what are you guilty of after only 2,000 years from the cross? Hmm. Okay, y'all in Matthew 21? There was a cult, right? Jesus was sitting on a cult, but did Zachariah say there would just be a cult? No, it mentions something else. Colt the foal of a donkey. Well, Matthew mentions them both. wonder why that is. Let's see. Matthew 21. This is uh, page 1094 in the Thompson chain. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Luke just mentioned the colt because that's what Jesus actually sat on. But Matthew's being a little more descriptive. He mentions a donkey and her colt, right? Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, tell him that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, See, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. If he had just come on a donkey, maybe they would have missed it. But since he came on a donkey that was a colt, the foal of the donkey, and she was there, tethered, together, with them, no way they could miss it, right? It's exactly what the Scripture said would happen. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt, placed their cloaks on them, and Jesus sat on them. I've heard people teach this before. Jesus sat on them. We have a colt and we have a donkey, tethered together, and Jesus sat on them. Them. How is that possible? You think Jesus was wave runner? You know, he had a foot on each. How did this happen? How did Jesus sit on them? Well, 
It's one of those things. Sometimes when you stretch a pronoun out too far from what it, what's that called? It's antecedent, whatever it, it, it refers to. It's referring to the cloaks. This is a common misinterpretation. It's about like saying Jesus sweat drops of blood. The Bible does not say that. He says he sweat like drops of blood. But it's a common misreading. They put their cloaks on the donkeys and Jesus sat on the cloaks. Uh, obviously. Not obviously. I promise you'll be in church and hear that wrong lots. Okay, but why too? Why we have cloaks on two of them? Why tethered together? Anybody ever been around donkeys? Donkeys are a wonderful creature. They really are. They, uh, for an animal their size, carry great big burdens, great big loads. They're incredibly faithful in many regards. They get loyal to uh, a person. They develop relationships. Donkeys are probably known for one thing above all else, though. Stubborn. You know what the Bible chooses to represent uh, mankind many times in a shadow and type? A donkey. Because they're stubborn. Because a donkey is usually symbolic of the human will. If a donkey is stubborn but can also be intensely loyal, faithful, if you will, why would you tether a young donkey to an old one? See, if you wanted this young donkey to learn and you went out and you tried just to teach the donkey, he would fight against you, not willing to do everything that you want because it doesn't understand. Sometimes in the Bible, men got mad at their donkeys and slapped them. You remember that? Balaam and his donkey? So what they did is they tethered this young donkey to an older one that already knew the routine so that the donkey had an example right in front of him, something that he could visually see, walking a step behind, turning when it turned, stopping when it stopped, and this would be a method of training the donkey because the old one was already trained. And donkeys were incredibly stubborn. Once it learned one method, it would want to stick to that. Now, that's good and it's bad. It's good as long as the method stays the same. I want to tell you this morning my meaning for this, my, the way that I choose to look at this as a means to teach you this morning. There were two donkeys there for a reason. One represents Israel and Judaism. See, this was the older, more mature donkey. It had great benefit in that it was faithful to the method that God had showed it. For 1,600 years, they did exactly what God said, ritualistically, over and over and over. But there's a problem with it. God doesn't have square wheels. You had to look at His leading every night and every morning, and you had to change direction when He wanted to change. But this old donkey was used to doing things a certain way, and it was hard for it to change. So He tethered it to a young donkey, one that would be willing to learn, one that would be willing to change different directions. Jesus rode that younger donkey that represents the new Israel of God, the church, made up of Jews and Gentiles. And they rode together. Jesus rode on the new entity because He came to do something new. But it was tethered to Judaism. It would never stop being Jewish. It was just new. This is not all that different than at some point in our lives, we've come into contact with the work of the Methodist. We've come into contact with the work of the Baptist, with the work of the Lutherans, the Episcopalians, and as many denominations as you can name. Many of them the result of God doing something new in their day. But like donkeys that learned a method, they stuck to that method, stubbornly refusing to change any direction regardless of what the Lord led. Right in their day, but as time went on, out of date because God's revelation is progressive. 
And they weren't tethered to anything. They were just there. What was Israel always accused of? What does Stephen say in Acts 7 about Israel? You stiff-necked, rebellious people. You always resist the Holy Spirit. It wasn't that they were resisting the Word of God. It wasn't that they were resisting the knowledge of God that they had. They were very much working within it. But they were resisting any leading of the Holy Spirit that might change their expectancy. See, they saw in the Scripture something that they wanted. We want the overthrower out or the oppressor. We want a king that comes and pushes out the marauding forces. We want God to appear like lightning. That's what we want. And the Holy Spirit was trying to lead them into a new revelation. But they were unable to change because they were a mature donkey. Now that mature donkey is not bad. Paul goes into great detail about why Judaism is not bad. We're going to find out that something's happened to Christianity. We are supposed to be tethered to an older, more mature donkey so that we are walking in perfect unison, something new tethered with something that was more mature, never to be separated. And yes, Jesus was seated upon the younger, the new revelation, but it was never to be broken from the old. They were to walk together. There's a problem in Christianity and that's that the tether is broken. Even the word Christianity. You know how many times Christian or Christians appears in the, all of the Bible? This might surprise you. How do, how do everybody who follows Jesus today, they're called something. All of us are called Christians. There's all kinds of sects, denominations of Christians. But everywhere it's universally known as Christian. So you would go to the Word and you would think, wow, that ought to be on every page, right? They called them Christians. They will know they're Christians by their love. Christian, Christian, Christian. You know what you don't see in the New Testament? You see three times the word Christian or Christians appears. Isn't that interesting? wonder why that is. Let's turn to those real quick. Acts 11. I told you I was going to start with the triumphal entry and then go and teach you what I wanted you to know today anyway. huh? Is that okay with you all? Oh, yeah. Acts 11. Acts 11. First time that the word Christian or Christians appears in the Bible. It's Acts 11, starting in verse 25. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. Not, not a bad thing, huh? This is how many years after the resurrection, though? 30 years? At least. At least some 30 years after the resurrection that they were first called Christians? And who called them Christians, does it say? Does it say they called themselves Christians? People looking at them called them Christians. Doesn't say they called themselves Christians. In fact, turn with me to Acts 26. In Acts 26, starting in verse 28, we find the next time that the word Christian or Christians appears in the Bible. Who is it that's speaking? Then Agrippa said to Paul, Do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? Paul replied, Short time or long? I pray that God, not only you, I'm sorry, I pray God, 
I pray, God, that not only you, but all who are listening to me today may become what I am, except for these chains. Who called, him, who called Paul or what Paul was doing? Christians. Agrippa. Was Agrippa godly? Mm-mm. Does Paul refer to himself as a Christian here? No, he says, I pray that you are what I am. So the first time, outsiders are calling the church Christians. The second time, an outsider is calling the church Christians. We don't see the church referring to itself as Christians. One more time this happens in the Bible. Anybody know where it is? First Peter. Wouldn't you think that this would be all over the Bible? I mean, if this is what we're all going to call ourselves today, if this is the defining thing that we're going to be known by, wouldn't you think that it would be all over the Bible? Only three times in all of the Bible. Y'all in First Peter? I'm not. Still looking for it. It's hiding. Page 1350. 1 Peter 4. Starting in verse 16. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. For it is time for judgment to begin with the family of God. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those that do not obey the gospel? If you suffer for what? Being a Christian. Not much different than I said if you suffer for being a criminal. If you suffer for being... This was a term that somebody applied to the church. It was common. It got to be common. But it's not how the church referred to itself. Say, well, why on earth are we doing this? And by the way, when Peter says, be glad that you bear that name, the name Christians? No, he's talking about the name of Christ. Be glad that you bear that name. Not be glad people call you a Christian. In other words, I'm suggesting this morning that the term was a derogatory term. That it was a term like you might say, Branch Davidian. Or you might say those people in Waco. Or Jim Jones. This was a term to identify them as a cult. Something outside of mainstream religion. It was a term others placed on the church. Well, why is that important? Because this young cult that Jesus was writing, this new entity that Ephesians spoke about, this thing that would have a dividing wall of hostility torn down so that one new entity could be made, was always supposed to be tethered to the older, more mature donkey. In fact, turn back to Acts. Let's see what they called themselves. I would have called us this, except in the common teachings, the books of cults, people like Kingdom of Cults that was produced, uh, Bob Larson's book of cults, there's already a cult named this. Isn't that interesting that the devil would work that way? In fact, as we get through here teaching today, one of the things that you'll see is that Christianity, if that's what we're going to call it, has departed so far from its original intent that you might be tempted to think of it as something other than what the Bible portrays. In fact, you can look at a couple of the worldwide denominations and know that it's something other than what the Bible portrayed. In other words, you get to a point with modern Christianity where the argument is not who has departed from the way, but the argument has become who has departed the farthest from the way. Isn't that what you hear in church? Well, we such and such may not be right but we are certainly better than the others. <laughs> you know, I grew up in a Baptist church. And 
in the Baptist church, we would, we would freely admit to you that we didn't have it all figured out. It wasn't all right. But we weren't as bad as those Catholics. You know? Uh, my time in South Louisiana taught me that Catholic folks will often admit that they don't have all of the answers, but they're not as bad as all of those splintered Protestant groups. In other words, the argument is not that we are the early church anymore. The argument is we haven't departed as far from the early church as everybody else. Well, what did the early church call themselves? In Acts 18, on page 1233, we see a meeting with a Jew. It's interesting, something that people have forgotten. Are you surprised to meet Jews that don't know Jesus was Jewish? Are you surprised to meet Christians, if again that's what we're going to call ourselves, that don't know what a Jew is? There is a church in a town that I used to live in that had a charter member more than 20 years in this church that asked a friend of mine what a Jew was. Been in church 20 years and didn't know what a Jew was. Thought a Jew was just a good businessman. In the early church, the first 130 years, the church was a Jewish entity. In fact, the real emphasis of most of the Scripture is, guys, you need to accept these Gentiles and not look down on them because they're Gentiles. Today, if those letters were written, they would have to have a totally different emphasis. We'll get there. Okay, verse 24. Meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was a learned man with a thorough knowledge of the Scriptures. He's a Jew and he understands the Word. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord and he spoke with great fervor and taught about Jesus accurately, though he only knew the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they invited him into their home and explained to him the way of God more adequately. This guy knew about God. He explained about Jesus from the Scriptures. And what was he called? A Jew who knew about the way of God. And because he only knew the baptism of John, Priscilla and Aquila explained to him something. They explained the way of God more adequately. He knew, it ad- he knew it correctly. They explained it more adequately. In this passage, you see that he was a Jew who knew about the way of God. So, Eric, why would you emphasize that? We'll turn to Acts 19. Let's see. In Acts 19, starting in verse 8, Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some of them became obstinate. They refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. Way is capitalized there, huh? Because he's not speaking about it just in any old way. He's speaking about it as if it were a noun. The way. The early church referred to themselves as Jews who were following the way. This is why the first church council, the argument is, do Gentiles have to become Jews, be circumcised, follow Judaism to be in the way? And the answer was no. They just have to abstain from food sacrificed to idols and be lovers of Jesus. But the argument was not about Judaism becoming Christianity. It was about Jews who had learned about the way. That's an entirely different perspective than we have today. 
Our perspective today is that we are Christians, something totally separate and apart from Jews. They are Jews and they need to become Christians. And our ideas about what Christianity is have very little to do with Judaism. In fact, every time we see something Jewish in the Scripture and it's everywhere, we don't understand it. Like God having wings. What on earth is that? We have no idea they're talking about that prayer shawl. Like a woman touching the hem of his garment. Volumes of books have been written about what that means. And all of it escapes the fact that Jesus was Jewish and the hem of his garment meant something. Jesus stands and gives a prayerful blessing. And we debate, what could that have been? Ignoring the fact that Jesus was Jewish and they prayed a priestly blessing recorded in the Word. We've divorced ourselves from Judaism. The reason those two donkeys were tethered was because the younger was to learn from the older. This is the whole reason that Paul has to write to us in Romans 11 telling us, you don't support the root, Gentiles. The root supports you. In other words, don't cut the tether. Well, how did we get in this shape? How did this happen? By the way, do you all want more way scriptures? Oh, you want a few? We'll do that real quick. In 1923, about that time, there arose a great disturbance about the way. Hmm. A silversmith named Demetrius who made silver shrines to Artemis brought in no little business as craftsmen. It goes on, there's a disturbance. But the disturbance is not that he's teaching Christianity. He's teaching as a Jew about the way. And they don't like it. Another way scripture. Turn to 24. Acts 24. We could do a bunch of these, but I'm not going to keep belaboring this point. I think you've got it. Yeah, we've got to get more than three. Good point, Brad. Verse... Twelve. Uh, mm-hmm. The next morning, the Jews formed a conspiracy and bound themselves with an oath not to eat, eat or drink until they killed Paul. I bet they got hungry eventually, huh? More than 40 men were involved in this plot. They went to the chief priest and the elders. I'm sorry, I'm in verse 23. I mean, chapter 23. I need to be in chapter 24, starting in verse... Um, 13, verse 12. My accusers did not find me arguing with anyone at the temple or stirring up a crowd in the synagogues or anywhere else in the city. And they cannot prove to you the charges they are now making against me. However, I admit that I worship the God of our fathers as a follower of the way. You see it again later in this same chapter in the 22nd verse. These were Jewish men who had within Judaism identified somebody as the way, the anointed one, the Jewish Messiah, the King. Did Jesus not stand up and say, I am the way, the truth, and the life? Nobody comes to the Father except through Me? Well, the early followers of Jesus did not lose their Jewish identity. Instead, they said, we are Jews who have found the way. This is something entirely different than the way that Christianity is thought of today, though, isn't it? Well, why is that? Part of it is because we don't understand what has happened in history. I'm not a history scholar, but I am a history buff. And you know that Jesus, when He came in, gentle, riding on a donkey, what is the next thing that happened? I've been telling you it's Wednesday. It's not Wednesday. Wednesday is the day that they condemned Him to die. What is the very next thing that happened? 
In Luke 19, you see it. In Matthew 21, you see it. Jesus walks in and He condemns that temple. This happened, and I've taught on this before, so I didn't teach on it this morning. But Jesus shows up in the temple the first time. He clears it. He inspects it. That's early in the book of John. Then after the triumphal entry, He appears a second time, and He inspects it, and He declares, not one stone will be left on another because you did not recognize the day of God's visiting you, and this place has become a den of thieves and robbers. Now, the Jewish law, and Jesus was a Jew, declared that if a priest had found something destructive in a home, two times in a row he was to wait a specified period, then come back and destroy it, not leaving one stone on another. When did that happen? We talk about it a lot. That happened in A.D. 70 under Titus, a perfect time period. Then Jesus used the Gentile power to destroy this temple. Now, we all know that. We talk about that a lot. But did you know that there was a second Jewish revolt? Everybody's looking at me bum-fuzzled. See, the first Jewish revolt... Is that a bad word? I hope not. Okay. The first Jewish revolt happened in A.D. 66, and it lasted till A.D. 71, 72. Okay? And most of the Jewish nation experienced horrible hardship during this time. Their temple was destroyed. The Romans destroyed people in a specific systematic way. They took away people's places of worship. They took away their language and then they destroyed their identity as a people. It's funny, you can go to Israel today and there is no place of worship still, but because they have a language and, a peop- and an identity as a, as a people, the Jews are still there and the Romans aren't. They were unable to defeat the promises of God in them, but even that's not what I'm talking about today. What happened to get us into a place where we are no longer tethered to our mature, older Uh, example, if you will. What happened is there was a second Jewish revolt. The church was doing great. The church was growing under threat of persecution for year after year after year. And our Jewish apostles rendered decisions for all of the church everywhere. And churches were rising up and Gentile numbers were growing in the churches. But when there was a problem, Acts 15 says, we went back to Jerusalem for the answer. The center of the way was Jewish apostles. But something changed. There was a second Jewish revolt. The Jews upset, angry, disheartened that God had not yet relieved them from the oppressor of the Romans, again took up arms. They fought against Rome. And history will tell you they came closer the second time with fewer numbers of people to defeating Hadrian, the emperor, in that area than they did the first time. In fact, the battle was so fierce and it came so close to victory that it was in A.D. 132 that Israel's name was changed to Palestine. It was changed by the Roman emperor Hadrian. Do you know why? He knew that these people had such an affection for the land, such a belief in the promises of God that would occur in that land because they were children of Abraham that he needed to rename the land and disassociate them from it. That battle's still going on today with a group of people called the... Palestinians. Isn't that interesting? It was introduced in A.D. 132 as a specific response to Jewish nationalism. The answer to Jewish nationalism was defame the Jews. Let's remove all references to Israel and Jews. Let's call them Palestinians after their old arch enemy, the Philistines. Their gates of their city were renamed. The gates of the city were given pagan names and Names like the Dung Gate, 
This was a gate where they used to walk through and it was a place of praise and was a place of renown and the Romans made it a sewer system. Well, that wouldn't be all that important except after A.D. 132 with this rise of anti-Semitism. This idea that Gentiles were not inferior to Jews, didn't need Jews' help, but were superior to Jews. And that the problem with the world had to do with Jews really started to take root because the hatred in the Roman Empire, the Gentile kingdom that ruled the world, was centered on the Jews. So around A.D. 150, the idea of replacement theology was born. Our early church fathers that we love so much, that we quote so much, that there's eight volumes of written by Philip Schaff and some, so many other people, birthed an idea. Israel had promises and now they're all given to the church. The church replaces Israel. They severed the cord between those two donkeys that God had meant to be there. They severed the church from its Jewish roots. You know when this happened in its largest sense? You remember the first church council? happened in Jerusalem. James stood up and said, it is my decision that we do this. He was a Jewish apostle. And it was his decision that they do something. The Jewish leadership in the church was making the decisions. After the Edict of Toleration in 313 under Constantine, not only do we see a replacement theology, but since now this Gentile empire is making the decisions in the church, you know what they decided? The Jews killed God. You wonder why when we have a movie like The Passion, the Jewish community is upset? They're upset because from the early days of Christianity, not followers of the way, but Christianity, they're the targets of everything that is bad rather than the revealers of something that was good. Since Romanism was introduced, we see a depart from the true doctrine that Paul taught in the place where Paul said in Ephesus where he told elders in his church, there's going to be ravenous wolves raised up from your own number that will devour the flock. You watch out for them. In that place, after the Edict of Toleration in 313, somewhere between 360 and 413, a church council met. But this time it's not dominated by Jewish apostles. Who's it dominated by? Gentiles. And you know what they declare? Mary is the Queen of Heaven. The Jews killed Jesus and Mary's the Queen of Heaven. The Jews killed God and Mary is the Queen of Heaven. Of heaven. That same Roman spirit exists today all over the world and it has infected all of us. So that when you read the Word, it's robbed of its Jewish identity. You are no longer tethered to the older, more mature donkey. And what was its purpose? To teach the younger, new entity not to stray too far from the past. Every time the church had a crisis, the Jewish apostles who had been taught in Judaism how to relate to God, who had been given the standards of God, were there to decide in a matter. It is my judgment, our judgment, that thus and so happened. That cord was severed, it was removed, and we began to get ideas in the church like the Jews killed God. We began to get all kind of other crazy ideas. You know there was no such thing as a Trinitarian doctrine the way that it's taught today then? And I know that's going to get me in trouble. By the way, I believe in the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. And I believe that they are all one. Let me get that out there. I'm not telling you that I'm oneness. I'm not telling you God's a ventriloquist. None of those things. But the way that it is explained today never existed in the early church. Why would that be? Because no Jew would have ever described God as anything but one. They would have saw it as polytheism. But 
a Roman who had many gods that now had become Christian had no problem with the idea there was a mama god, a daddy god, and a little boy god. No problem with that idea. Heresies were introduced to the church because the tether that was supposed to be there was separated. Well, where does that leave us? Why teach this? Well, there's a couple things that I hope you get from this. One is, instead of calling the Jews fickle, because from the day of the triumphal entry to the day of the crucifixion, there was a change. Let's look at our own lives, which is what the Word is meant to do. Have we not been fickle as a people? Did not we who were happy to be Gentiles, not looking for God but found by Him, enter into a Jewish promise with excitement? In fact, let me read something to you. Look at Ephesians. This is, this. I hope, well, you won't hear this many other places. Let's put it that way. In Ephesians, the second chapter. Starting in verse 11. This is page 1299. Therefore remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcision by those who call themselves circumcision, that done in the body by the hands of men, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. Are you beginning to understand your picture? Hopeless destitute, no understanding of God. That's how the Bible describes you prior to you entering into the way. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. See, how were you Jewish? How could somebody be Jewish? They were Jewish by blood. They were Jewish by heritage. And they embraced the doctrine of their fathers, the God of their fathers. You and I have become Jewish in a sense by the blood of Christ by embracing the God of His Father. Got me? The God of the fathers. For He Himself is our peace, who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing in His flesh the law with its commandments and regulation. His purpose was to create in Himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace, and in this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which He put to death their hostility. Get this. There was a hostility in the Jewish people towards everybody that was not Jewish. Why? Because there were four Gentile kingdoms that would rule over them before their promise would come. So they learned to resent the Gentiles that were ruling over them until the Messiah would come. And something had to happen. Jesus destroyed that hostility. He took away its fervor and that there would no longer be a law over the Jewish people telling them they couldn't associate with you, telling them that you were unclean. He would bring the two people together as one in Him. But the problem was Jewish towards Gentiles. Gentiles didn't have a problem with Jews for the most part from a religious sense. If this were written today, it would have to be written the other way. It would have to be written as... Those of you who claim to be Christians, who have forgotten about your Jewish brothers and have created a dividing wall of hostility, it needs to be torn down so that the two can become one. In other words, at first the problem was that the Jews would not accept Gentiles into their religion. Now the problem is we Gentiles have hijacked the Jewish religion and will not accept them in. The early church met to decide, do Gentiles have to become Jews to worship God? 
Now the church would meet to decide, do the Jews have to become Christians to meet their God? He said, but wait a minute. I thought there was no salvation in anyone other than Jesus. Jesus is a Jew. Do you see where we have gotten? The cord has been severed. We're no longer Jews who follow the way. We are Christians. Something other than Judaism. Something divorced. And listen to what the devil's done very skillfully. You know who else claimed to be a Christian? Give me one big guy in history that the Jews have such admiration for that claims to be a Christian. Hitler. When you go to Israel now, they will tell you all the men that were Christians and affected Israel. And Hitler's first on their list. Everywhere I went in Israel, dates were given as BCE and CE, before the common era and in the common era, except one place. A plaque that talked about the persecution of the Jews says, in the year 1933 of the Christian era, the world stood by and watched while six million Jews were put to death. Did you know people like Henry Ford were friends of Hitler? Did you know that the only institution in all of the world that is religious that has a seat in the United Nations is the Catholic Church which claims to be Christian? Have they been a friend of the Jewish people? See, what the devil has woven into this is something that the Jews cannot accept. Why would he do that? Because Romans 11 says when they accept Jesus as their Messiah, our resurrection will occur. It will be life from the dead. Friends, this was a Jewish promise that we entered into. The two donkeys were tethered together. We partook in their blessing. We're divorced from, from it right now in thought, in action, and in deed. It will have to be reunited for the promises of God to happen. Now, I would rename us. I would not call us Christians and call us followers of the way, except that would confuse all of our audience who understand Christian as something. And you see that even in the New Testament, Peter goes ahead and adopts what other people are calling us, Christians. You see that? That's one of the later books written in the New Testament. He finally adopts it. We do the same thing. It's okay that people call us Christians, but we need to understand that Christianity came out of Judaism and in its roots should still be connected. So why is all that important? Because it will keep you from accepting heresy. It will keep you from going astray as most of the churches have done. Am I telling you to become Jews? Not at all. We are grafted into their roots, but we bear our own kind of fruit. I will never cease to be a Gentile. None of the Jewish apostles would have wanted me to. They fought to keep me from doing that. But at the same time, we can't disassociate ourselves from Judaism. Sometimes we're like Gentiles with Jewish toys. You know, and here I've got a shofar. I've got a prayer shawl. I've got a mezuzah. I've got all of these things. Gentiles with Jewish toys. I'm not trying to be a Jew. I don't want you to try to be a Jew. I don't want you like some foolish people have done to go prick your finger, send blood off somewhere to see if they can determine from your DNA that you have Jewish ancestry. I think that's idiotic, even though friends of mine have done it. I think it's silly. But what I do expect us to do is look at this Word in its proper context to understand who Jesus is. And when you envision Him, God intended for you to envision Him a certain way. You know, there was a big argument in the early church. Is it okay in church icons to put imagery of Jesus because the Word said God wanted no graven images? And you know what the decision was? The decision was that because the Word said that Jesus was a visible image of the invisible God, 
that it was okay to put images of Jesus because the incarnation in itself was an image of Jesus. That was an argument. You, you understand? They took then pictures of Jesus and converted them to be like themselves. So that now when you look at Jesus, you don't see anything Jewish about Him. You see some Jeffrey Hunter, blonde-haired, blue-eyed, Norwegian-looking guy. When you picture Jesus, we can't picture Him as an American in a three-piece suit. I have a friend in the Christian Businessmen's Association that told me when he thought of Jesus, he thought about Him dressed in a business suit. We can't remake God into our image. He was put into a context for a reason so that we would understand Him. And the further we get from that, the more we break that tether and stray away from that more mature donkey, the more we make donkeys of ourselves. So in this church, we will embrace that. I say all of this for one reason. Today's the triumphal entry. Wednesday is the crucifixion. So when I want to teach on the crucifixion, when I want to teach on the Last Supper, I will not do it in its Gentile context. I'm not going to put a little wafer on a table for you and a little glass of wine and tell you to eat Jesus like the Gentiles do. Instead, we'll dress in biblical dress. We will sit in a biblical forum so that you can see it in the context that it was supposed to be given in. And you watch and tell me if it does not mean a thousandfold more than you've ever seen it portrayed in any Gentile church. God gave it to us in a culture rich with meaning for a reason. He wanted you to understand He never wanted you to be dependent upon some oligarchy in a religious sense that you had to go to for their judgments. In fact, that's how the world got in such a bad situation. He wanted you to understand it in its culture and it would be freedom. If the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Y'all stand up and let's pray. Today is the first day of the week in the Jewish calendar. That week, so many thousand years ago, this would have been the 10th of Nisan. On the 10th of Nisan, the Passover lamb would be taken into your home. This is why Jesus appeared in the temple before all of the people. For four days, you would take this Passover lamb and you would examine him. You would put your hands on him. You would inspect him and you'd get to know him. He'd be a part of you. Your kids would love him. It would be hard for you to do what would have to happen on the 14th of Nisan at twilight. You'd kill that lamb. You would acknowledge that it was perfect. Nothing wrong with it. Hadn't done anything wrong. It was innocent. But it had to die so that death would pass away from you and you would enter life. And you would take its blood and put it on your household, symbolizing that you were receiving what this lamb had done. That was happening on the 10th of Nisan. They took Jesus into their home. On the 14th of Nisan at twilight, he was put to death. His blood then became that instrument by which we would mark the doors of our hearts and houses so that death would pass over you and you would enter into life. This was something that was meant to be understood, something that you should understand. Between now and Wednesday, examine Jesus. Look at him in the Word. Look at how he stood up and said, if any of you can prove me guilty of sin, do so now. You'll find nothing wrong with the man. You'll find nothing about him except love, mercy, and power of God. And then when we meet on Wednesday, we'll look at the last meal that he ever did with his apostles. And in it is a promise of a future meal. This is the hope of Christianity, or the hope of the way, if you will. 
and it will free you. It will put your thoughts on what the Jewish thoughts were on. By the way, the apostles met with Jesus, first chapter of Acts, right before He ascended in Jerusalem. What did they ask Him? Are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel now? They always had that on their mind because that's what had been promised. It's the furthest, furthest thing from the mind of Gentile Christians today. Something's wrong. We're off focus. How far off the track do you have to be before you are a cult? Hmm. Let's pray.